You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12. We're looking at verses 9 through 21, and I would like to start with the reading of God's Word. It's going to be on page 1006 if you're using one of the church Bibles somewhere near you. I still hear some pagers rustling. I've seen that we have some guests and visitors. Welcome. I'm Pastor Brian, uh, one of the elders here and the lead pastor along with Pastor Josiah. All right, hopefully you've had some time to find your way to Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. God's Word says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, as we deal with this next section in the book of Romans, as we're working our way through this letter, show us us why it's here. Show us what you would have here in this text. Lord, help me in, in Lord, teaching and explaining. God, I ask that you'd give us ears to hear. That you'd open up eyes. He would take the regenerate heart today and give him or her an affection for you like never before. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity and the freedom that we have in this country to even sit and open the word and hear from your word and live by its precepts. God, I, I would ask you'd continue to give us this freedom here And Lord, you would extend this freedom around the world. We know your word says there will be persecution and difficulty. So Lord, if you should decide not to extend this freedom here, Lord, help us to withstand the evil, the difficulty. Let us follow these words. And God, let us persevere. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. That's kind of an interesting interesting section we've just hit based on what we've been doing through the book of Romans. It looks like, you know, a whole lot of instruction and command. When I was uh, young, before I was a Christian, uh, an adult, but not a Christian, I thought that God was a domineering rule maker. I mean, I thought the Bible was his book of rules that was set out for us, given to us, to restrict humans from doing what they want. And then I would bring this up with the, the few Christian friends that I had. I didn't have many, and, and I would just share this with them. And they would say things like, well... God is not domineering anymore. He's not like that now. They say something like, well, like, 
What you're thinking, Brian, is the God of the Old Testament, but we're New Testament Christians. The Old Testament is law and judgment, but the New Testament is grace. And I guess I didn't realize that I read my Bible. I read it even before I was a Christian, and I found what they said to be complete nonsense. It was just hogwash. Because everyone I saw saved in the Old Testament appeared to me to be saved by grace. And I saw a lot of imperatives, which is a command. I saw a lot of commands in the New Testament. So that didn't seem to stack up. There's a lot of stuff in the New Testament, by the way, about judgment and a forthcoming judgment that is coming in wrath. It just didn't seem like some stuff was Old Testament and some stuff was New Testament. I'd bring this up with them and then they'd say something like, you know, well, God has set us free from the rules. That's religion, but we don't have those rules. But how in the world can they make an argument like that? How, how can a Christian make an argument like that? I had read the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verses 2 through 17. Also found in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. I read those commands. I had read the book of Leviticus. Well, the, the laws and the, the work in the temple. Sure, okay, those are... Those are in the Old Testament, but even still, God seemed to really have an expectation that they would be followed. It wasn't that they, everybody was just free from that stuff. And then I would go to the New Testament, and I read the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament is Jesus saying, you've heard it said, and then he says something, he quotes an Old Testament, don't murder, but I say, even if you have anger, you've violated it and you've murdered. He upped the bar on the Ten Commandments and that was all in the New Testament. And, and speaking of Jesus making commandments, what about when he said, I give you a new commandment? Love one another. I mean, that sounds like an order to be obeyed. That sounds like a command. That's John 13, 34. And by the way, it's in the New Testament. So my friend's arguments, they just wasn't, they weren't stacking up. They just weren't working for me. As far as I was concerned... All these rules that I would see were God's way of keeping me from doing what I wanted. And if God wouldn't let me do what I wanted to do, in my mind, he was a domineering, rule-making monster. I didn't want to have much to do with him. Obviously, 1994 pre-Christian Brian was wrong. I think we would probably all agree with that. But how was he wrong? Why was... He wrong? What did I fail to understand? What was I missing? And while we're thinking about 1994, what did my Christian friends fail to understand? I mean, where were they struggling? Well, in a way, what we have here in Romans chapter 12, 9 through 21, and really, frankly, the whole book of Romans, it's sort of Paul's way of showing this is if we really just sort of understand why it's here and what it's doing and what it's for. So I, I want to read... Romans 12, 9 through 21 again, just so we can put this in our mind. I'm going to read it kind of fast. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Which, by the way, is the verse that causes me to park in the back of the parking lot. Just like... <laughs> Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. 
Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and do not bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another, which seems to be getting harder and harder by the minute. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because as it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. That sounds like a list of rules, doesn't it? I mean, I've seen rules. They sound like that. That seems like rules. Or maybe, maybe you're in here. I know maybe you're like I was, and you have a, an aversion to the word rules. So how about we use the word uh, imperative? An imperative is a command. Okay, whether it's rules, imperatives, commands, whatever, does this not look like a list of things God wants you to do? That's what it looks like to me. I think that's because that's what it is. So what's going on here with what uh, Paul has presented to us? First, notice the context in which this list I've just read lives. Paul has clearly presented the gospel in the first 11 chapters. Here's the gospel. Yay, Jesus is doing all of this. And, and then he gets to Romans 12, 1. And there he urges us. He, ur- he, he urges, and that's the word. He urges us to do something. Urging is not a command. Urging is an invitation. It's a, maybe a strong invitation, but it's an invitation. Paul has invited us to give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. See, I, I urge you to do this. And when you do this, it makes us a holy, pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. And by doing so, the result is that we won't be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So then, once that's happened we might be capable of knowing what the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is. That's how we know what the will of God is. The implication is that if we don't give ourselves as a living sacrifice, we are incapable, incapable of knowing the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And so then he says that, and then in what follows, chapter after chapter, is what it looks like to be that Christian who's a living sacrifice. That's what the living sacrifices do. That's what they are. All of the things in the next few chapters are the application of that. We don't do them because God is a monster demanding of us. We do them because our heart and our mind has been changed to the will of God and transformed out of this world and into God's economy. These things in us become our desire. We want to live like this. We want to be what we see here in this application. It should be our deepest desires. We should want that more than anything. These instructions are the will of God. And when we obey the will of God, it pleases God. And when we obey the will of God, it honors God. And and get this, when we obey the will of God, it actually blesses us. Because we get to live in the life that God, who knows best, has designed for his saved, blood-bought, adopted children. It's good for us. 
So first, before we get to the section we just read, but what we saw last week, Paul urged us towards unity in the church. Those all-in sacrifices, they, they value other people, and they value the gifts that God has given other people for the unity within the church. And we're supposed to use those gifts to bless others. That's what he urged us to do. And then he shifted here to a list of things that, that we're all supposed to do. Okay, the, the first things were God has given you specific gifts. Not everybody's an ear. Not everybody's an eye. We all have different parts. To now, this is what all the parts do. Together and, and individually. We've read this twice. It's just a, it's a list here. Romans 9. Excuse me, Romans 12, 9 through 21 is a list to show us. Now, it's not everything a Christian has to do. It's not everything a Christian should do. But it's a good list. It's a healthy list to say this is what a holy, set-apart, out-of-the-world Christian does and doesn't do. If you're separated from the world and if you're living for God, this, is, this should be a joy. This should be the stuff on this list that sort of shapes us. How do you presently stack up to what we've heard twice this morning already? How are you doing with this? When one does these instructions, verses 9 through 21, he or she is demonstrating that you are indeed a living sacrifice. And by doing these instructions, whether perfectly or not, none of us are doing them perfectly, but while you're doing them, this is the means by which your mind is actually being transformed to God's will. This is the means by which you're being removed from the world and brought into God's will. This is how. These things. Nothing on the list is hard to understand. You guys know what all these words mean. I don't need to go to the original Greek. There's nothing complicated here at all as far as understanding what this list is saying. But we still balk, we still have a little bristle, we still struggle in any area where you balk, any area where you're tempted to ignore, reject, make an excuse, any one of those areas is God's way of showing us an area where we need sanctification, where we're still holding on to the world in that area, where we need to be transformed. We need to surrender this, this thing we've got in bondage to sin over to God, and we need to follow His ways. And as a Christian, we're... we're invited into the sanctification in our life. We, we welcome sanctification. It's a joy to have this, this transformation and, and this work and this growth. Why do, we, why do we do it? Even if it's going to be painful and hard? Because it's the will of God. And because if we are living sacrifices, we want to do the will of God. We want this sanctification. It's God's will and desire. Listen, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God. you got people all over the place going, I just want to know God's will for me. I have it for you right now. If you've been looking for it, I got it. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is God's will, your sanctification. My sanctification. Do you want to know what God wants for you? Your sanctification that you would live in this way, that you'd be transformed, that you'd be growing, your mind would be transformed. Now, I realize sometimes we have an easier time of some of these. I know some of these on the list much easier for me than some of the other things. Sometimes we have a hard time with some of the things on the list that we've read. It's not even the all-inclusive list of everything that Christians do. It's just what 
It's just some of the things Christians do. There's lots of other stuff. We, sometimes we struggle with these things. But as Christians who are living sacrifices, given over to God, we cannot reject the list. We cannot ignore the list. We cannot make excuses for the, well, that's good, but I, that's just not my gifting. That's not my call. That's not how that works. Hospitality is just not my thing. No, this is a list for everyone. This is what sanctification looks like. These are the things, some of the things, that should mark a Christian set apart from the world, being transformed and sanctified and renewed as a living sacrifice. Are these things optional for the Christian? We might be tempted, maybe not based on what I just said, but we might be tempted to say yes if we were to read this. Yeah, they're optional because, because Paul urged us to do this. He didn't command us. But the answer is actually no. These are not optional things for a person who has given himself or herself as a living sacrifice. Because if we've given ourselves as a living sacrifice, then we want to do the things that are the will of God. That's what a living sacrifice does. That's what a living sacrifice wants to do. Everything, no area of our life held back. And then we are transformed in this way. And then as we do these things, we see that it's a way for us to worship the Lord. This sanctification, this lifestyle actually is an act of worship. It becomes a desire of our heart, becomes a thing we want to do, and therefore we worship when we do these things. So it's not that these things are commands for the Christian, although they are basically imperatives. It's that these things are more like a test, a, a, a testing of the Christian. Not to test you if you will or won't do them, but to see if you really are what you claim you are. It's like the test strip I use in my hot tub. Okay, we, we, we have these little strips. They have these little color things on them. You dip it down, you pull it up, and then you measure it against the bottle. And it tells you what the state of the water really is. You might think it's one thing, you might think it's another, but the test strip gives you the test. It shows you. That's what this is. This is like the test strip in all these various areas. The test strip on my hot tub has four or five different areas. How is, what's the bromine? What's the hardness? What's the balance? Blah, blah, blah. That's what this is. How's the Christian doing? What's the state of the living sacrifice, the Christian in his or her life? That's what we should be seeking. But here's the rub. Here's where it gets a little tricky. We know, at least I hope we know, we should know, doing these things do not save you. They can't save you. So just doing this really awesome, and just like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do this. This is my list. I'm going to do all these things, and then God is, has to love me. It's just not going to work. You could do all these things better than anyone on the planet, and you could die, and then you're standing before Jesus, and you could hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you. Like we read in Matthew 7, 13, 23. <clears throat> okay, we get that, I think. We should get it. We understand that. Works don't save us, so doing these things doesn't contribute to saving us. But then there's this. As, as Christians, we're tempted to think that God is telling us to work harder. White-knuckle it. Get to work. Do this stuff. Work hard. Does he say that? On the contrary. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the answer here is not to look at the list. Don't look to the list. We look to Jesus. We learn from Jesus. We, we want to hear from Jesus. We want to sit at the feet and worship him. Instead, seek to spend time talking with him in prayer and, and hearing from him by the reading of his word and gather with his bride, the church, as much as you can or you can enjoy the blessing of the gifts that he has given to the various people in the church and you can bless others and find your joy in that because it is by those gifts and it is by the gathering together that we can be shaped in righteousness. Don't look to the list. Instead say, here I am, Lord. Have your way with me. I'm yours, all yours, a living sacrifice. And then when you've done this, instead of focusing on the list, then you will be renewed and transformed. And then when you see this list, because you've already done that, you've already said, I'm all in on this, when you come across the list, suddenly you go, wow, this is an instruction from a loving Father. This is an invitation to experience the sanctification that my loving Father wants to help me. And this is where I can find joy and peace. This is how God is transforming me. This is a blessing. And then it becomes a joy to obey the Lord. It becomes a place of peace and rest to obey. So what might have looked like a burden of rules on the one hand, when we've been transformed in the Lord, and our heart and mind has changed, it becomes a beautiful joy becomes the place where we want to be. It's not just a bunch of rules from a domineering monster who wants to take away all the things you desire, but instead it's a change of your desires so that these things become your peace and your joy. Okay, but what about my, my pre-Christian objection that I shared at the beginning? The stuff I thought back in 1994, stuff my Christians said to me, well, I've already shown you, I think, that God is not a domineering monster. Like, let, I think we can agree on that. But is he a rule maker? And if, if we follow his rules, is it going to dramatically change the course of our lives? Well, it will. He is a rule maker. This will change the course of our lives. Praise the Lord. But let's imagine for a minute we could, we could get in a DeLorean, punch in the coordinates in the flux capacitor, Go back in time and talk with 1994 Brian. And maybe we can have a conversation with his in-name-only Christian friends. And let's think about how we might be able to deal with his incorrect thinking. Let's think about how we might be able to converse with him and see how that might play out. So crank her up to 88. 1994. Oh, Kurt Cobain killed himself. Bummer. There's 1994 Brian. You know what he says? 94 Brian says, God is a domineering rule maker who wants to stop me from doing the things I want to do. What would you say to him? What would be your conversation with 94 Brian? Here's what I'd say. I'd say, yup. Yeah, that's right. Except for the word domineering. Domineering. 
because domineering means that, that God would be asserting his will in an arrogant way, by definition. But he does assert his will because he's God and, and we're not. He definitely does that. But it's not arrogant. It's absolute. It's authoritative. It's perfect. And, and you know what, 94, Brian? It's the most loving thing anybody will ever do for you in your life. At this, knowing 94, Brian, I'm positive that he would come back with some sort of lament. He wouldn't hear that well. He'd say, oh, yeah? How can restricting somebody from doing what they want to do or making them do something they don't want to do be loving? That would be sort of his accusatory attack. Now, please excuse 94 me. I was a rebellious and somewhat rude young man. But despite that, what would you say to him? I mean, think about it, really. What would be your response to him? How, how, can I, how could it be loving to restrict somebody from doing what they want to do or not doing what they want to do? We could go to all kinds of examples in the world when this happens, but here's what I'd say to him. I'd say, 94, Brian, nobody goes to hell kicking and screaming against his wishes. Not one person. Not one person. Romans 1.24 says that God delivered sinners over to the desires of their hearts. And then it goes on in Romans 1.26, and it says God delivered them over to their disgraceful passions. They were delivered over to all this because that's where they wanted to go. It's what the desires of their heart were. You see, God gave them exactly what they wanted. But they can't have what they want. You know, 94, Brian, you can't have what you want, but then also have all the blessings of God if you're going to reject what God wants, because what God wants is that you do it God's way. You can't have it both. So, 94, Brian, what do you want? Then, like most people, who genuinely don't want to deal with God, but want to have a conversation, and I talk with him all the time, Brian would not answer my question. Instead, he would, he would deflect the conversation in another direction with some sort of other accusing question. Maybe you've had these conversations. They're absolutely maddening. I'm sure this is what he would do. So here's probably what he would say. He'd say, how can you say that's a loving God if he still sends people to hell? How would you respond to 94 Brian? What would you say to this young man? Here's what I'd say. I'd say every one of us deserves hell because we don't obey God's number one command. We don't obey his number one command and we are all headed to hell if we're not somehow saved. But this is how God shows his love for you, 94 Brian. You know, to answer your question, you're asking. So here's the answer. Romans 5.10 says that while we were still his enemies, meaning we were sinners, we were doing it our own way, we were following our own hearts, our own passions, we deserved this hell by our own efforts. While we were still in that place, following the passion of our wicked hearts, Christ died for us. Christ died for 94 Brian. I'd say to him, you probably don't really know what that even means. Except he did, because he did read his Bible a lot. But I tell him, Christ is God's Son. His one and only Son. We are God's creation, 
But Jesus is God's one and only son. He's, there's something different. And Jesus agreed to leave heaven and become a human being and live the perfect life that we were commanded to live, but totally didn't. And he followed all of God's commands perfectly to the letter. And then Jesus was punished for our sin and all of our failure, even though he didn't fail any of it and he didn't have any of that sin. He was punished in our place so that he could take our sin and give us his good standing before God. He was changing our position before God. He was a substitute for us so we could be saved and live the life that we didn't deserve because we deserved hell, and we could live with God forever, even though we violated all of God's rules and commands, even his number one command. And then I would tell 94, Brian, we know this is true. Because he'd want to say, well, how do you know? We know this is true, and Jesus is who he claimed he is, because he also said while he was in his earthly ministry that on the third day, after he was killed, he'd defeat even death, the scariest thing, and he'd raise from the grave, which he did. And he said, someday we're all going to do the same thing. The same thing's going to happen to us. And then he spent 40 days with his disciples, then he went back to heaven where he is praying for us, you and me and 94 Brian right now. But I would tell him, you don't get saved automatically. You have to obey God's number one command. The command that he has for 94 Brian right in that moment. I'd ask him, do you want to know what that command is? God's timing is perfect. And uh, for whatever reason, for some perfect reason that only God knows, God did not open 94 Brian's ears and eyes. God did not give 94 Brian a new heart with new desires for God for seven more years. So foolish, rebellious Brian would probably have responded to a conversation like this with some kind of rude blow-off. He would have rudely ended the conversation with some sort of inappropriate comment, probably. But let's for a minute imagine that God opened the door for this conversation to go just a little further and we could continue talking to 94 Brian. And let's imagine that he, he, he said that he did want to know what God's number one command was. How would you answer him? Do you know what God's number one command is? What would you tell him? I'd say, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he commanded us to believe in him. Commanded, ordered, to believe in him. In Matthew 4, 17, he said, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. John the Baptist preached the exact same message in Mark 1, 15. Peter preached the same command in Acts 2, 38. And in Acts 17, 30, Paul preached that, quote, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world. End quote. This is a clear command to everyone and not obeying this command, not believing that Jesus is who he says he is, not repenting and giving yourself over to God is direct disobedience to God. You are in direct violation. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, the almighty God. Obeying this command means God will save you. 
Repenting and all this stuff just means stop doing it your way and do it God's way. So I'm going to, I'm going to not do it my way, I'm going to do it God's way, whatever that might be. It's the belief that brings the salvation, not the act of actually doing it, but then if you believe it, you actually do it. And then I would ask, 94, Brian, are you ready to do it God's way? But then here's where 94, Brian pushes back. He says, see, there's God again with his commands, forcing people to do what they don't want to do so they don't have to go to hell. You just do all that so you don't have to go to hell. How can you be okay with that, he'd ask. Maybe you've had conversations like this. They don't seem to go anywhere, but I need to remind us that if you're a Christian, you should believe 1 Corinthians 1.18 that says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. So we could, we could tell 94 Brian that because God has given us a new heart with new desires, and we've given ourselves over to him as a living sacrifice, that we cherish his commands that we love them, we love his instructions because we know they are the power of God for us who are being saved. But 94, Brian wouldn't hear it. To him, all he sees is foolishness and thus proves the Bible true. We could show him a list of the things we read in Romans 12, 9 through 21. We could say, look, I don't see these as a domineering monster. I see these as beautiful guidance from a loving Father who wants to grow us in Christ's likeness and he wants to wash us with the Word. But 94 Brian would scoff and laugh at us and throw this list in our face. Because after all of this that we've had, the greatest witness he's had is his so-called Christian friends that he hangs around with, that he pals around with, and they look nothing like Romans 12, 9 through 21. Nothing at all. They don't look like anything on this list. Oh yeah, they confess that they're Christians with their lips, but they deny them with their lifestyle. They're fake. They're just like him. There's really no difference. They think and act just like everyone else in Brian's 94 world. They're not set apart from the world. They're just like the world. They're not being transformed by the renewing of their mind. They're steeped and catechized by the world. They don't look anything like this list. So he doesn't want to hear anything from me. 94 Brian just doesn't buy it. How sad. How utterly sad. Those were the only Christians he knew except for this group of people who would come into a restaurant where he worked, where he was a server. They would have 20 people at a table after church on a Sunday, and they would special order everything. They would complain about everything. They were the most difficult people I'd ever served. And when it came to getting a tip after I spent an hour of my morning missing all the other tables where I tried to make money, that was my job, the tip would be some little track that said, here's a tip, obey Jesus. This is the encounter that... 94 Brian had with Christians, his friends that looked just like the world, and those people he encountered on Sunday morning. They didn't look anything like this list either. How sad 
Now, before we leave 1994, although I'd really like to stay there, I thought it was crazy then, but I didn't know anything. Before we leave 1994 and come back here to finish this sermon, I, I think I need just a moment to address those so-called Christian friends I had. I mean, you might know Christians like this. I don't know. What would you say to them? Here's what I'd say. I'd say, what is the matter with you people? If you were really Christians, read your Bible. Go to church as much as you can. Sit under godly preaching. Learn what the Bible says and live it by giving yourself to God as a living sacrifice. And then tell people the truth of the gospel. The truth, not your idiotic world ideas. The truth of God's word. Know and live and proclaim the gospel. But then... Please, when you do, please, when you've done that, don't stop being friends with people like 94 Brian. He needs you because you are the only Christians he will meet for years. And how can he believe without hearing the gospel? And how will he ever hear if nobody will proclaim it to him? How beautiful... Your feet may be if you will just take the truth of God's word to every 94 Brian you can find. Please just go do that. That's what I would say to my 1994 Christian friends. Okay, let's come back to the present day. I just want to wrap this up with really just one statement and one question. When we give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, we live by a specific ethic, a specific code that God has given us. That's what Christians do. That lifestyle, that ethic, that code that we live by, how we live, it honors God. And it sanctifies us. It grows us. And it serves as a witness to the glory of God in salvation to the lost world. How does your life, as a living sacrifice to God, stack up against Romans 9, excuse me, Romans 12, 9 through 21? If this is the test strip and we, we test your life, how much of a living sacrifice are you? Let's pray. Lord, first and foremost, thank you for saving me. Thank you for your perfect timing. I don't understand it now, but I know it's right and I know it's good. And God, help us not to be like the friends I had back then, but be sanctified, profound witnesses in this world, light to the lost. Help us to take the gospel to those who need to hear it, our friends, our family, our neighbors. Help us to speak truth and not shy away from it. Help us to know, Lord, your word correctly so we don't speak heresy and hypocrisy and lies and stupidity. We want to stand on your truth, Lord. I'm just saying, help us. We need your help. Some of us have not prioritized our time to know you. So, Lord, I'm asking that you would prioritize our time. We might not like that, but... We might need a little more time. 
We might need you to take away the distractions. Sanctify us in that. Lord, we want to be living sacrifices that honor you, and we don't want any, any dark spots on the test strip. We want to live for you, Lord. Help us to do that. God, if there's anybody sitting in here that maybe is like I was, rejecting you, far from you, struggling, eyes closed, ears clogged, heart of stone, God, change it all. Give them a heart of flesh that beats for life. Open their eyes. Unclog their ears that they would hear the truth, repent, and believe. Lord, I'm asking, please, anyone in here, anyone watching, Lord, equip us to be courageous to take your gospel to the lost. As we first know your word, and Lord, as we live it and surrender ourselves to it, Lord, help us and equip us to proclaim it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.